Hey everyone, welcome to a new episode of the Whiskering Podcast. Today I'm thrilled to be going back to Kentucky and we're going to visit a brand that I got introduced to and now am somewhat obsessed with and that is Lens Creek Distilling. And we've got founder and what do you consider? Head distiller, master distiller? Yeah, head distiller. That? Head distiller, uh, David Meyer on with us to talk. So David, welcome. Thank you, Dave. You've you heard David or Dave, I've heard both. Either one. Like I said, my mother called me Dave, but my birth certificate says David. Fair enough. Fair enough. So <clears throat> for uh, those folks who don't know about Glens Creek quite yet, um, I hope that's going to change by the end of this episode. But uh, <clears throat> let's start out with uh, where you guys are. Well, we are technically in Woodford County. We're just about four miles down the road from Woodford Reserve and about a mile and a half from Castle and Key. So just down, down the road a bit. And, uh, but our address is Frankfurt. So that kind of is confusing, but we're in the Woodford County side. Um, just down on McCracken Pike. It's a beautiful drive to get down to you guys. You said, uh, go through Castle and Key to get there. Uh, and to me, that seems fitting. I know usually there's two roads to get in there, but one's out because of flooding. That's right. Yeah, the road got washed out back in March 2020, or 21, I mean, sorry. And so uh, if you GPS to get here, most likely it'll take you to the road closure. So just uh, tell people to try to come down Duncan Road. That's the best way to get here. If you're at Woodford, just keep coming straight up the road. Fair enough. Um, and when I was driving down there, I didn't quite realize how close you were to Castle and Key, but it's a fitting kind of entry point uh, if you go down that way. So you drive through, you see, you know, of course, the castle, the stone buildings and all of that, the bourbon archaeology. And then you come over to Glens Creek. Uh, you pass the Old Crow um, distilling part of the Old Crow site with the sign still there. And then you go just a bit farther. And there on the left hand side is... Glens Creek. So uh, I'd love to just go over the story of how you got to that site and um, particularly how you were able to get it away from Beam's hands. Well, I didn't get it from Beam's hands. Uh, so the two distilleries, Old Taylor and Old Crow, were both uh, part of Colonel H. Taylor's uh, legacy. And um, so the two distilleries actually uh, properties actually uh, join up and there's a lot of crossover uh, between the two they were both purchased by national distillers after prohibition and national did a major renovation here in 1935 and uh, you know the history is the distillery was built in the 1870s so that was about 20 years prior to bottled and bond Act of 1897, which was significant, and also before prohibition, and also before electrification. So, um, when prohibition came along, and uh, of course that put a, put a big hurt on the industry overall. And then after prohibition, the issue was the equipment here would have been 50 years old already in 1935. The, the, the facility was, you know, 50 years old. And so, and just like in today's world, 50 years of technology is, is like a lifetime 
a difference. So National had to do a, a significant renovation. And, um, and so that was in 1935. And then in 1964, they did another uh, minor renovation, increasing capacity. And uh, then, of course, in the 70s, uh, the decline of bourbon started. And uh, by the mid 80s, it was it was just over. And, you know, what I try to explain to people when they come here is that this distillery was built specifically for the new invention, the continuous column still. And that was first uh, used in Europe in the early 1800s and it was adopted in the United States in the second half of the 1800s. So, so these two distilleries, uh, Old Taylor and Old Crow, uh, were you know, vastly larger than the previous distillery that was, that was here. Um, you know, the prior to the continuous column steel, most distilleries would be about the size that we are, you know, making a few barrels a week kind of thing. And uh, so the column steel really drastically uh, transformed this industry and these you know, giant facilities like what we have here uh, came, came into being in the, in the second part of the 1800s. And so, uh, you know, the trouble with the column steel is it never stops. Uh, and, once you turn it off, it's really difficult to, not the steel, it, it's not the steel, it's the boilers. I should clarify that. It, so the boilers that are still here in the distillery were, were part of that 1935 renovation. And the trouble with the old school boilers is that, you know, they're, they're on and they stay on. And uh, once you heat up those bricks, if you turn it off and cool the brick down, they break. And um, then you have to do some extensive repair. So, so they only shut the distillery down once per year uh, during the summer months for maintenance and so forth. And uh, so, so again, by the time the eighties came along, you had this convergence of, of a decline in sales and 50 year old technology again. And so, and uh, there was, you know, there was a drastic consolidation in the industry at that time. A lot of distilleries closed as there were, you know, brands consolidated and so forth. And, and Jim Beam bought, uh, old Taylor and Old Crow in 1987, and uh, this distillery closed in 1985. And uh, you know the the barrels that were in the warehouse. The, the issue finally became that you run out of warehouse storage space. And in normal times, you can uh, send your distillate off to some other brand, uh, you know, to to balance out your supply and demand challenges. But when, when everybody's sales are down, there's really nowhere for that excess to go. And so there was massive closures uh, all across the state uh, in the 80s. And so Bean bought it. And what you saw down there, the sign that says Old Pro Distillery, there's no distillery over there. The distillery's on this property. Uh, but that's the entrance. That was the entrance to the, to the facility where employees would come in to go to work. And uh, the... The DSP or distilled spirits uh, permit uh, transfers with the, with the property. So Jim Beam gets to keep the DSP number, even though there's no distillery over there. They're just uh, storing barrels over there at this time. Gotcha. So, so when you uh, purchased the property, was it just through a, you know, through a regular realty? Yeah. So, so the, the real story is um, a friend of mine, mentioned that there was a cool old distillery for sale and you know the distilling business was never anything that i intended to to do it was never in my dreams uh, it wasn't been a lifelong passion you know when i was 50 
I probably had tried five bourbons in my life. I wasn't much of a drinker at all. And, and so, you know, um, but, uh, it's, it's possible that, that I was doing some distilling elsewhere, uh, undisclosed location. And, um, so my friends knew that and it was just a, kind of a hobby for me. And, um, so he says, I had this cool distillery for sale and it was, uh, old Taylor. And you know, we looked it up online and, and you just look at the place and you see the history and I'm just really fascinated by it. I like cool old things and uh, I like to look at how people made things, you know, back then and the craftsmanship and it just, just fascinating. And so, so I drove out to, to old Taylor and started looking at it. And uh, frankly, the listing price was much higher than I could afford. Um, and I just kept thinking, well, you know, that they've had this thing on the market for a while and it's uh, from the time Beam owned it until then, it changed hands several times. And uh, there were salvage people who owned it uh, just prior to, to that. And they were, you know, dismantling buildings and getting scrap and taking out some of the historic materials. And so, so anyway, I, I looked around the place. I mean, it is an absolute disaster. It, you know, 30 years of mother nature just having her way. And, and also the issue with Castle and Key, uh, the, the property sits right there on the road and there's really no fence or security. So the local kids would hang out there and party there and, vandalized the property and so you had all of that plus mother nature plus the salvage people who you know they had no intention of preserving the property so whatever they didn't want they just throw off in some pile somewhere so there was crap you know, everywhere brick and stone and just a mess just an absolute mess and uh but you know i really really thought that it would be nice to to buy that place and fix it back up and so, so I devised a plan. I was going to throw this, you know, kind of a lowball offer that I could afford out. And as, as I got ready to, to make the offer, the realtor told me that they just turned down an offer that was about twice as much as what I was going to offer. So, I, you know, my, all my, my dreams were, were crushed at that time. And then he said, uh, well, there's another distillery just down the road that's for sale. And, and I thought, well, why are you just telling me this now? I mean, I spent two weeks sort of researching old Taylor and looking at the property, making sure I wasn't going to buy a super fun site, you know, that needed billions of dollars to clean up and toxic waste or any of that kind of stuff. And so um, when I, when I came down here, I learned that his listing of this property had, had gone on, the listing had expired. So he wasn't going to get a commission and and so I, I just told him, I said, look, if, if this sale goes through, I'll make sure those guys pay you the commission because, you know, you, you deserve it. You, you earned it. And uh, so I started to explore this property. And this is quite a bit smaller. The reason Old Taylor was so much more expensive is 75 acres versus down here, 16 acres. Um, so anyway, uh, that, that uh, deal went through, you know, things you learn along the way. Like you, you go to a bank and you're trying to get a loan and, you know, I've bought property in the past. I've owned homes, I've owned rental property and so forth. And, you know, you go to a bank and you show them what you're trying to do. And, you know, if you, if you qualify for the loan, you get a loan, 
but when you're trying to start a distillery and you have a business plan and they, they, you know, they're looking at your numbers and they say, okay, where on this timeline are you going to turn a profit? And you say, well, you know, whiskey has to age. And so it's going to be a few years and they anticipate going to be out here somewhere. And that, you know, they're, of course their question is, well, what are you going to do for revenue in the meantime? And uh, so anyway, I, I don't know, I probably got turned down by, by 12 banks or so before I finally found one that would agree to, to uh, give me a loan for the place. And um, so then, you know, other things you learn too, the insurance people, uh, you know, they come out, the buildings are in really rough shape. Some of them, the old distillery and some of the buildings are in pretty rough shape. And, uh, you know, they're, how are they supposed to insure these places? And I said, look, I don't need insurance on all of this. I just need insurance on this place where we're going to operate the business. And uh, so anyway, you know, it, it was just a, a whole series of challenges, not the least of which is, you know, getting all the equipment set up and, and we build it ourselves. And, um, you know, everything that we have here equipment wise is something that we put together out of materials that we acquired from uh, food industry, you know, uh, stainless steel things and so forth. So, so we build all the equipment as well. So that's, that was the, uh, pretty much the first year while we were getting the permits in place, we were cleaning up the building, painting, you know, trying to get it in some sort of reasonable condition. Um, but it's, it's really tough to make an old concrete block building look beautiful. And then, uh, you know, mother nature again, working, 24 seven. And so keeping the grounds, you know, once we cleaned up some of the property, trying to keep it, uh, you know, keep the grass mowed and keep the weeds down and just a never ending, never ending task. Yeah. I heard on, uh, either, I think it was on whiskey lore <clears throat> back in 2020 when you're on with them that it took something like half an hour to get through the front door the first time. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Um, the the brush had grown there was a big uh, asian honeysuckle growing right right in the middle of the steps uh at the bottom there and those things the way they grow they don't they don't grow like a tree with a trunk where you just go and chop it off they, they you know they got all these branches sticking out and you have to kind of get go at it a little at a time to try to get to the to the heart of the thing and uh yeah and, and it was I probably spent, you know, maybe not full time, but the better part of two weeks just pulling vines off the building and the, the vines that had been growing for 25 years, just some of them are still literally stuck to the building. I mean, they're tenacious things. And, um, you know, it, I, I joke with people when they come in, I show them a picture of what the place looked like when I first got here. And I say, yeah, you know, you squint your eyes and you say, you know what, a little pressure wash and some paint, that'll, that, that'll look real nice. Um, but again, it's, a, it's just a kind of one of those things And you were here and, and of course, you know, people always ask, well, what, was there a fire? You know, what's all the black stuff around here? And then you explain whiskey mold and the fact that the barrels, you know, that are aging next door, the angels share that mold feeds on the ethanol vapors and it, it's, you know, it's relentless and it, it's never ending. It's not, it's always going to be that way. And so trying to keep the place looking nice is probably the biggest challenge that, that we have. And, and we should be clear that mold's not really, it's not dangerous. It's not the Sacubotrys black mold. No, it, um, yeah. 
and and you know it's it's interesting because it's a it's a more recent phenomena you know it wasn't until distilleries started aging barrels on site in massive quantities that this mold would have shown up you know and uh of course that wouldn't have happened until until these distilleries came along and and it wasn't until about 15 years or so ago i read an article in wired magazine of all places that that uh, a guy went over to scotland a canadian guy went over to scotland as i recall and and they were trying to figure out what's this black stuff that seems to grow around distilleries all the time and uh, the issue is they couldn't they couldn't grow the culture in a lab they were trying to feed it regular mold food whatever that would be and and it wouldn't work and this guy finally thought you know this this stuff seems to be around distilleries. I wonder if it likes alcohol. So he put some vodka in the Petri dish and it, it grew. And then he was able to identify what it was. And, and, and of course, then there was uh, a lot of controversy around distilleries about their responsibility for the black stuff growing on people's homes and cars and furniture and whatnot. Um, but, but, uh, you know, I get asked that all the time. So, well, there's people have been working around it now in the area of, uh, for you know, since the late 1800s, and there doesn't seem to be any adverse effects. You know, people that spent 40 years in the industry at, at these properties, day in and day out. So, no, there doesn't seem to be any. Um, just, but you know, just just like other molds that are going around, is it possible that there's an allergy reaction or something like that? I, I suppose so, but uh, nothing that yeah. we that we're aware of. Yeah, there's always some kind of exclusion with that, but. Um, yeah, I, it was something I didn't hear about until I kind of saw it the first time and that I didn't, it wasn't even at, at Glens Creek. It was at, um, oh hell, I want to say it was at drive through the heaven Hill property. Yeah. And, uh, pretty much every distillery I visited, as you said, if, as long as they're aging something on site, it's got that mold, like the, every building on heaven Hill had it. Wild Turkey has all of it. Yeah. Um, really the only one that I saw that didn't was Bardstown Bourbon Company, but they're practically brand new compared they're to some new, of the yeah. warehouses. Yeah, yeah. so too new. Yeah, but they they may because their whole thing is visitor center and visitor friendly. They may find a way to counter it from growing. I don't know. I can well, kind of if see you, them doing you know, that. if you keep your warehouses far enough away from your your visitor center, you're fine. Uh, you know, it, I've heard that it can be as much as one mile radius. Uh, that really depends on prevailing wind direction and that sort of thing. And, uh, you know, if you, that was, that was something that struck me is when I first came out here, like I said, you go to Castle and Key and there was, there's no blackness down there. The buildings were all clean. The stone was white and you come down to here and the distillery has got this blackness all over it. And it, it occurred to me that they haven't had barrels aging down there for 30 years. Mm -hmm. And the, down here we, we have had, and so um, I think they're going to experience it at some point. You know, I don't know how many barrels you have to have for it to, to show itself, but it's there. It's already there. The, you know, I try to explain to people that these molds, even yeast, these, these fungi, they create spores and the spores are airborne and they're, they're literally everywhere. So if you, if you go out in the middle of, of some place, you know, deserted place and there's nothing there and you start building warehouses and you put hundreds of thousands of barrels in there in, in short order, there's going to be black mold. It's already there. It just doesn't have anything to eat. Mm. And so 
uh, once once you establish uh, uh, aging facility. And so, so this is a big controversy now that obviously people don't want aging facilities in their neighborhood. You know, these a lot of these neighborhoods grew up around some of these distilleries. And when they found out the distillery is responsible for that black stuff, there were some lawsuits and things like that. And uh, so, so now when some someone wants to put in another aging warehouse, Buffalo Trace is trying to get 24 warehouses for 60,000 barrels apiece in adjoining county. And of course, the, the locals are opposed to that because they don't want the black mold all over everywhere. So, so it's a it's a big controversial issue. You know, we're down here in the valley, and there's really not the only places that are affected are the are the distilleries themselves there's a couple of houses down here but they've been here forever right right so i mean i'm i'm fascinated by the history of it and um i don't remember if i told you this while i was down there because i so what i did just for the listeners i uh, i did that tour a, a week in kentucky and tennessee and i made sure to visit glens creek as part of that um i uh, had a, a you know mini tour and, and tasting session with John didn't tell him who I was nothing like that I didn't want to influence him in any way it was just just wanted to have a good time and enjoy and it was a great time so definitely get down there if you have the chance <clears throat> and afterwards I went over to John and then to you David and just introduced myself and um, just didn't want to be like oh yeah I was there and he'd be like well why the hell didn't you say hi um but one of the other reasons that i i really wanted to visit and wanted to know more about the the brand the the site and everything is that in terms of uh you know dusty bourbons or brands that no longer exist in their original format old crow is is really it's probably my favorite um in terms of especially old crow from the national distillers era 50s early 60s distillate um, the chessmen pieces are, you know, I collect them. I love them. It's kind of getting harder to find them, but yeah, mm-hmm. um, love those, the traveler, all those. Um, and so there is a quite a legacy that you have there just in terms of place. And, um, something we'll talk about when, when we talk about your products is that you do honor, uh, doc crow and Dr. Crow, uh, quite a bit in terms of what you try to do with the process and with the stories. And so I wanted to lead into the next kind of question being each of your products has a story attached to it. Um, Some might be true, some might be fabricated and some, and either way, they're incredibly entertaining. Um, So who comes up with the, uh, the stories and the descriptions for your products well the the uh the true stories i mostly do i mean i'll i'll uh generally kind of rough up a draft and then have john and and maybe the other guys um look at it you know there's a few folks who help out here part-time uh that you know they they really enjoy being here and, and being involved in this this process and and they you know they have regular regular jobs during the week and they come out and help out on the weekend. And, um, one of those fellows, Stuart, he, he really liked to, uh, spin a yarn. And so the ones that we, you know, the ones that we made up to, to, 
partly to be humorous, but also to help educate people about puffery and the fact that a lot of things that you see and hear about the industry, about products, it's just not true. You know, um, puffery is a, a lawyer word that means an exaggeration or embellishment of some claim and you can't dispute it. Therefore, you can't really file a lawsuit for false advertising. So if I say this bourbon is the smoothest bourbon in the world, you can't sue me uh, over that. Well, you could sue me, but you won't win, okay? Mm. Because there's really no way to, to prove or disprove that statement. And so on our a couple of our products, we just really made up uh, the most outlandish story that we possibly could that, you know, pe- give people a laugh and they say, oh yeah, so tea vodka, you know, centuries old recipe first distilled by Commodore Borislav Alexander Soti of the Swiss Romanian Navy. And then you stop for a second and some people, you know, if you say it seriously enough, they believe there's a Swiss Romanian Navy. And so then we have John got a map to put on the wall that, you know, we circled Switzerland and Romania and we point to it and say, look guys, they don't have a Navy together. Okay, Switzerland's landlocked. They do have a navy. Switzerland does have a navy, but they don't share it with Romania. And so, so we we created those stories in jest, you know, for fun, but also to to help people understand that what they read on the labels is not necessarily true. Okay, that that there's a lot of uh, uh, non-distilling producers, a lot of source brands. And, and there's nothing wrong with that practice. We do it. We, we source a few things from MGP. And, um, but, but we're clear about it. And I, it's just my feeling that, that people uh, want transparency. If they're coming to a small place like this, where they believe that the people that they're talking to are the ones who actually make the product, that that, that should be the case. Or if, if it's something we don't make, we disclose that. We say, look, MGP makes great products. They make a lot of it. They're in a endless number of products out there on the market. Uh, if they didn't make good products, they wouldn't exist. And certainly at their scale, they're, they're enormous. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so, yeah. And, and the other part you said too, it, it's incredibly important to me to honor the legacy of the place and the origins. And you know, Dr. Crow never saw this facility. He passed in 1856 and this was built in 1870. So he never actually saw this particular facility, but the legacy of the brand. And, and as you said, uh, you know, it was probably the top selling brand for 125 years You know, subtract prohibition out of that time period, but certainly from the 1935 renovation going through till the end. Um, And yes, you know, I've had some of the, old crow from the fifties and sixties. And it was quite, quite nice. And, um, you know, just trying to honor that legacy and not create, you know, a, a reproduction of Disney world or something here. But, but I mean, this was, this was an industrial facility. This was a workhorse, you know, they produced 400 barrels of old crow a day. And, uh, there was a lot of people who worked here who spent their careers here. And we also, really want to honor that there's a lot of people that put in a lot of time and energy into making this place what it what it was what it is and so we want to honor that and i think you know we'll get into the products like i said but i i honestly think you do having tasted the old crow stuff and and of course tasting your products um they're you know they're not 
one-to-one comparison. It's not the same product. Of right, course. Right. There's, there's too many things that have changed since then, but <clears throat> the idea and the process behind it, uh, from what I know of, of old crow and of James Grove, it seems to fit pretty well. So, um, with that, I thought, you know, maybe we'll go into the process a bit. Um, and so you are a process guy. I am. Um, you spent a decade plus at, at Toyota and then uh, been consulting for a while, for a decade plus after that. Right. Um, you're uh, the, I saw you were the author of a, uh, the Toyota like field. The Toyota way field book. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, number one, I'm going to be looking for a car. Um, no, I'm just kidding. I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> but, um, you know, when you were coming over and as you said, you don't have a huge distilling background, you're coming over to this distillery and you want to create a brand and everything. Um, what did you take from your time at, at Toyota and in consulting that helped you formulate what you have now? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, you know, the, the Toyota process focuses a lot on, on, you know, this concept of standardization and process controls. And, you know, if you're creating something, manufacturing something, there's, there's certain uh, aspects of the process that you have to pay attention to and control, whether that's a time, temperature, pressures, that sort of thing. And, you know, uh, when, I, when I was distilling and started distilling, I realized that there's just a tremendous number of variables and most of those variables, you really have little or no control over whatsoever. And so then I kind of reflected on this, that humans have distilled things for about 2000 years and they've been fermenting since before written history. And so, you know, my first thought then was, well, how complicated can it be if people did this for 2000 years before science got involved, you know, the microscope was invented in the 1670s. So prior to that, people were fermenting without really understanding what they were doing. They just knew that if they followed certain steps, certain things would occur. And it's a natural process. Yeast is also in the air everywhere. And all it needs is food. If yeast spore falls on food somewhere, it's going to start to do its job. And, um, and so, so I took that approach that, you know, keep it basic doesn't have to be complicated. It can be in the modern world, you have automation and you have all these other technologies that, that you can use. And, and those are important if you have a, a very, very large distillery where you're trying to, to control the massive quantities of product. But the, the old school way with a pot still is, is fairly basic. And, you know, there's lots of variations. There's probably as many ways to configure a still as there are people who are distilling. And there's a lot of people who distill at home. And so that's how I know you can see the, all these different uh, variations. And um, so I experimented a lot. That's one of the things from Toyota, you know, is you have, you have an idea about something. Can you uh, perform some small experiment rapidly if possible and, and um, prove or disprove the hypotheses, right? That you formulate the hypotheses and scientific method says you're supposed to try to disprove it. And if you can't disprove it, then it must be true. 
And so, you know, I, um, I had no, no knowledge whatsoever, David. I, I started this with absolutely zero understanding of fermentation, of distillation, of, of any of it. I mean, I, you, you would have had to look really hard to find somebody who knew less about alcohol or the, the process of production of alcohol than me. Okay. And that's, that was the state, but, but I like making things. It's what I'm good at. And it's what I've done throughout my career is involved in, in all my hobbies had to do with making things or woodworking and welding and pottery and glass blowing. And, uh, you know, I've done all those various things. And so, uh, and, and I had very little risk. I mean, I had a small still and I was doing really small quantities and just experimenting with different things and trying different things and, you know, reading and, and watching YouTube and, uh, you know, I, I, it took me a while, but I discovered that a lot of the, what I'm going to call common knowledge that people were, were spreading around about how to do it was wrong. It was just incorrect. You know, the one thing I kept hearing over and over again was, well, you don't want to use wild yeast. And I thought, well, you know, factory yeast is a relatively recent phenomenon in human history. And uh, people have been fermenting for thousands of years without re really understanding what they were doing. So what could be wrong with doing that? And so um, I was explaining that to John about yeast spores and how spores can be viable and remain viable for no one knew how long exactly, decades, centuries, millennia, you know, who knows. And John suggested, well, maybe some of the old crow yeast is still in the distillery and maybe we can go catch some. So, well, catching is not that hard. You just cook up some mash. And so we cooked up a small batch of mash and some buckets and we put those buckets in various locations in the distillery. And uh, went back a week later and discovered, well, that bucket got uh, attacked by raccoons and pigeons mm. and, you know, groundhogs and uh, possums. And, and so the only one that survived uh, the ordeal uh, without contamination was the one that we put down in fermenter number five back in the distillery. And it seemed logical to me that if you were going to find yeast spores somewhere, they would be inside a giant fermenter. 30, 39,000 gallon fermenter might have a spore or two in it. And so that sample actually was fermenting. And uh, so I brought it up and I didn't have a microscope at that time. So I, it, it, I was just, you know, flying by the seat of my pants basically and said, well, I don't know how much yeast is in there, but it's probably not enough yet. So to grow yeast, you, you continue to feed it, you know, give it food and, uh, give it nutrients and, and uh, it's like any other living organism. So I had this little setup. And if you want if you want yeast to focus on reproduction, you want to aerate the liquid. I mean, yeast is primarily an anaerobic uh, organism, but if, if it's, uh, if you aerate the liquid and generally in the liquid, there's some dissolved oxygen that the yeast can, can use. It needs a little bit of oxygen. Um, but when you aerate it, it focuses more on reproduction and less on alcohol production. So in generally, you never want to aerate your mash because you want the yeast to focus on making ethanol. But in the case of growing my, my uh, culture, um, I bought a little fish tank 
aerator and dropped it down in the jug. And, you know, I had this whole process going on. So, so I did that for about a month and I figured then, okay, I probably have enough now and we can start, uh, start using it for our fermentations. And, uh, that's, that's what we, that's what we still use. Now, yeast mutates and, uh, we open ferment. So there's also the addition of other wild yeast potentially that are, that are in there. Uh, so people always ask me if it's, you know, is it the original old crow yeast? I said, well, I don't really know because I don't have the old crow yeast to do a DNA analysis on, but that's how we, how it came to be. But, you know, if, um, what humans did for, for thousands of years was spontaneous fermentation. You know, you, you prepare the food and you leave it open to the air and the yeast spores fall in and, and they start to do their work. And that same same thing happens here. I mean, it happened happened yesterday when, and as we start going into the cooler months and our, our cooked mash cools down more quickly, uh, the uh, opportunity for spontaneous fermentation increases. So I cook it today, leave it out overnight, come back in tomorrow morning uh, and when, you know, when the temperature is cold and you can look and see that it's already fermented before I even add any of our yeast to it. So... Um, and that's the way, that's the way it would have been done during Dr. Crow's time. And so I think, you know, you're, you're correct. There's not a, a, a exact comparison between what we're doing and the old, and what old Crow was doing. First of all, they were using a continuous column still, but the, the old school ways they'd use a column still for, for the stripping run to, you know, eliminate the majority of the water. And then they would take the, uh, the result and put that in what they called a doubler, which is effectively works like a pot still. And so the outcome would be uh, this, uh, more similar to a pot still. And today's distilleries typically don't do that. The, the column stills are designed to do uh, a finish, uh, finished product in, in a single run. Uh, so it's a little bit different in today's world. And I definitely encourage people to listen to, um, to episodes that I'm referencing pardon me from other podcasts and shows that David has been on where uh, we talked about uh, the site at Woodford um, and just the dimensions of how they could, they had to have been using pot still or even a slight coffee still, because there's not enough room for a column still That's right. um, over there. So um, I, you know, definitely listen to his episodes at whiskey lore and um, blue collar bourbon uh, for those are the, just two of the ones that I listened to just to prepare for this. And it was uh, tons of great information there um, that let me skip some of that information so that we can dive a little deeper into um, some other parts of the process, which I love to do. Yeah. So uh, one more question with the, with the yeast. Um, I know this might've been answered kind of implicitly, but um, have you thought of asking like, a, like, you know, Pat Heist or Shane Baker over at firm solutions to, Kind of run their run your yeast through their spectrometers and see if there's any um, you know modern equivalent. I guess I know it might be hard to, to or even impossible to find exactly the one that they would have been using 30, 40, 50 years ago, or even a series of them. But I would be curious, just as a, a, a nerd that I am, to uh, see you know are your yeast strains aligning with someone else's or some other ones. Now, that's a good question, you know, and, and I, I haven't thought about that. I met Pat years ago and certainly know about Firm Solutions. 
Um, but that might be something that we can we can look into in the future. Um, and you know, that it's it's one of those it's one of those questions you know that I look at and go, well, if you go to any distillery, winery, brewery, or if you look at that and you ask, well, what what kind of yeast do you use? Well, it's Saccharomyces cerevisiae, right? Uh, everyone is the same name. How do you how do you really indicate that there's a difference between them? And uh, you know, they, uh, this is probably old now, but ten years ago, I'd read and say, well, they've identified a hundred thousand varieties of of yeast and estimate that there's a million varieties unidentified. And uh, so, and they, and they mutate, and so. Uh, that, that might be a difficult question, but I can certainly check. And, and you know, there's a repository that's in Greenland, I believe it is, where they've got all these various organisms in this cold storage scenario. Um, and, uh, you know, who knows? I know that the yeast they use here was known as Y174. That's what it was. That's what, that was the name. And National National may have uh, set some of that aside in that repository or, or something. You know the the original yeast, but um, you know we we kind of go with the notion that uh, we're we're all and uh, this is the part that kind of I scratch my head is you, you go to one of the big distilleries and they've got this big open fermentation vat. And they talk about their special yeast. And I said, well, I think to myself, well, you don't think you're ever getting any strains from the air in there? Because certainly we know yeast floats around in the air. If you want to uh, ferment something in your uh, place up there in New York, all you have to do is put the food out on the table. But, oh, by the way, put a little vinegar in there so that it doesn't spoil yeast likes in an acidic environment and, uh, you know, put some put some fermentable sugars out on your counter and guess what? You'll catch some yeast. Now, what kind it is? Well, it's Saccharomyces cerevisiae, cerevisiae right? It, uh, which strain, which, you know. So yeah. I, I don't have the PhD in, in it like Pat does, uh, but I just look at it from a practical standpoint and say, look, you know, when I was experimenting, I tried probably 50 different kinds of yeast. You know, I went to the, to the uh, local liquor store and they had the home brew, you know, home wine making section there. And so I tried all those. I tried Fleshman's yeast, uh, you know, distillers, active dry yeast, you know, champagne yeast, wine yeast. I tried them all and they all work just fine. And uh, honestly, I couldn't tell any real difference in, in the product. But part of that, too, is the nature of a pot still is that you're going to get variation in the outcome based on many, many things, uh, one of which is the fermented mash that you put in, of course, and the, and the grains, the mash bill, the yeast itself. But, but the way pot stills operate is, is that there's a lot of variation in the, in the outcome. And can you, I, I don't know, maybe just my, maybe my tongue's not sophisticated enough to, to say, oh yes, I can definitely detect that that note is from that yeast. Uh, you know, you take, so, so when you, 
when you're creating the mash, it's sour mash. And the reason it's sour is because during fermentation, there's also bacterial fermentation. There's two bacteria, primary bacteria, lactobacillus and acetobacter. And acetobacter is the one that eats ethanol and makes vinegar. Okay, so acetobacter and yeast have, have had a symbiotic relationship for probably millions of years. Yeast likes the acidic environment because that keeps other organisms out of its food. Other organisms don't live in that environment. So that's why you can have things like mustard on your kitchen counter without refrigeration because it has vinegar in it. Vinegar is a preservative. But that's a natural part of the fermentation process. And if you're, if you're open fermenting like we do, uh, certainly you're inviting that bacteria to be part of that. And if you do like we do, transfer yeast from one fermenter while it's active to the next fermenter, you're also transferring those bacteria. And then sour mashing is taking the liquid from the still that's left over and, and putting that into the next batch to lower that pH. Because uh, if, if we don't lower the pH, then the yeast is gonna exert some of its energy to create acids. The yeast wants an acidic environment and we don't want the yeast to use its energy for that. So we, we use the setback to, to uh, acidify that liquid to drop that pH down to around five and that gives yeast a conducive environment and uh, so so that was something that Dr. Crows credited with uh, perfecting or standardizing he didn't really invent the process but but he brought some science to the situation and um, so so that's how we do our match and and you know you talk to some talk to some folks and they're going to tell you that you're your microbiome, the organisms that you have in your environment are, are all part of what goes into your final product and the taste of the product. And so we do some things that, that other distilleries, I think, would, would shudder. You know, Pat, I have always joked if Pat Heist were to come over here, he'd, he'd probably have a heart attack because we do things that I was told you're not supposed to do. That's what I told you in the beginning. People said, well, you, you should never use wild yeast. So what did we do? We went out and did, did exactly that. Uh, you, should, you shouldn't stress out your yeast. Don't let it get too hot. Don't do this. Don't do that. And I said, well, you see, that's the thing. If the yeast gets a little bit stressed out, it pr produces some esters. And people make the mistake, I think, of you know, they stick their finger in the mash and they taste the mash. And then they, they determine that, oh, that, that mash got contaminated somehow and it just doesn't taste good or doesn't smell right and and you know that a lot of the home distillers are going to toss that out because they're afraid that it's spoiled i said no stick put that in the still because in the still you're going to get these different wonderful chemical reactions because the alcohol molecules ethanol methanol uh, propanol and so forth that, that are created during fermentation those those molecules love, I call them promiscuous molecules because they love to bond with other molecules and create new things. And some of those things have great taste. It, it always amazes me. You put sour mash. I mean, if you put your finger in and you taste it, it's sour. Not quite sour as vinegar, but it's, it's pretty sour. And then what comes out of the still has a sweetness to it. So I put sour in the still and I get sweetness out of the still. And that's because of those chemical reactions when you concentrate the, the alcohol molecules, they start to bond with some of the other molecules and create new things. And those things have flavor. Well, then you're going to take that and put it in a barrel 
and the whole equation is going to change again. And then with some oxidation, you get some changes again. And so there's just, there's just, to me, there's just way too many steps between, you know, the yeast fermenting and the final product that you taste to be able to, to backtrack to the yeast and say, ah, that's what did it. And it's, it certainly contributes, but the environment you have the yeast in, um, you know, the nutrition level that the yeast is in, all those things are going to affect the outcome. That's what I told you from, uh, to bring this around full circle. As a process guy who spent a career really thinking about how to effectively control process to come into this environment where you have very little, if any, control whatsoever, if you think you're in control, you're, you're delusional. Uh, nature is in control here. Now, we can control certain things when we operate the still. We can regulate the temperatures and so forth. But, uh, but in terms of the first parts, the fermentation and even the grain, you know, even if you grow your own grain, you don't have control. It's going to vary. The grain's going to be different as you harvest it once per year, but you use it all year. So the storage conditions that the grain is in is going to affect things. There's just billions, really literally billions of potential variables that, that exist in the process itself. And, and to our point earlier too, that's why you, we can't truly recreate some of these uh, quote unquote dusty bourbons or whiskeys because there are just too many variables yeah. that exist. That's absolutely uh, right. Yeah. And um, one of them, and I'll just throw this in there, that's uh, one of my favorite mini topics specific to Old Crow as well, is that um, I was on a, a Zoom with uh, Freddie No, probably about a year, year and a half ago at this point. Um, it was at a point where I knew I liked the National Distillers Era Old Crow, but uh, I didn't really understand why. And I was interested to find out, figure out why. And he had said that, um, you know, of course, Beam owns the Old Crow brand. And uh, he personally was saying that he would love to try to recreate Old Crow as it was in the 40s, 50s, 60s. Uh, he said one of the main uh, one of the main obstacles to that was, uh, of course, the chemical structures as well. One of them being ethyl carbamate, mm-hmm. you know, and it being uh, now it's labeled as a carcinogen, um, and I, it is at a, at a certain level. I don't think at the level that Old Crow was, you know, that era Old Crow had. But I'm not a doctor. But uh, but the the point being that it it creates a certain mouthfeel too and a texture to the bourbon that made an eighty or eighty six or even bottled and bond proof bourbon significantly um, you know heftier, mm-hmm. gave it much more body because uh, I mean it's a urethane molecule it's it's going to do that it's going to create something that's heavier but you're not allowed to have that same level anymore even though it's a natural byproduct of fermentation. Um, so that that's all to say that, again, it's another reason why we can't exactly recreate, but um, when, if you get to taste true old crow stuff, it's uh, that's one of the reasons why it tastes, why it does and doesn't taste like thin corn distillate uh, instead. Hey, whiskey ringers. I hope you've been taking advantage of that podcast-only code for the Scotch Malt Whiskey Society. They've got around 20 bottlings coming out each month, and there's never a shortage of new things to explore. This month's focus, their October distillery dive, is distillery number five. This famous lowland distillery will show you something completely different 
and you've probably never had before. This isn't your floral and fruity space side, but it's also not that smoky, sometimes medicinal and maritime isla. It's truly unique and in a category and region all its own. The distillery dive bottlings were announced on October 11th, so you might still find some available. If not, keep an eye out. There are always more bottles coming from this distillery and others, and always new journeys to explore. There are also currently five fall bundles available, packaging multiple bottles together from sometimes the same and sometimes different distilleries into a discounted set for you to discover. Remember to use the promo code WRP for 20% off your annual membership, and you can visit the Scotch Malt Whiskey Society website to sign up and order via the link in the show notes. Well, you know, um, in this world, there's usually two, two sides of the coin and two stories. Uh, actually, Old Crow was uh, known to have less EC than some of the other counterparts of national distillers. Um, and I, I know that because the gentleman who used to be the superintendent here at Old Crow, uh, he visits us regularly and we've talked about that regularly. And uh, my understanding is that, is that, uh, that that was kind of one of the contributing factors of why Beam wanted to acquire Old Crow brand is because the barrels that were aged here could be mixed together with other barrels to reduce the overall level of carbamate. And um, now I'll have to get you in contact with Bob and, and maybe he'd agree to a podcast uh, because he, he, uh, he's a chemical engineer. I'm not a chemical engineer and he can talk about those more complex things. But my understanding from talking to Bob is, is what they did here that, that maybe was a little bit different like I said, they used a column still to, to do the stripping run. And for those who don't know the stripping run, it's just an initial run where you kind of run it, you run it through a still. And the idea is to go from eight or 9% alcohol by volume up to 30 or 40% by volume. And then you would do a finishing run in a secondary still. And the modern, the, the, the stills have come a long way since the time when this place was in operation. And so now they've got these uh, continuous stills that'll put out a finished product without this, without the need for the doubler. But you see what they would do is they would, they would do the stripping run one day and they would uh, put it in a collection tank and leave it overnight. Bob says that that time, and I think this is probably true, uh, the time there allows some of those things, the volatile chemicals to, to uh, evaporate off basically, and, and reduce that quantity. Um, and coincidentally, you know, we do something similar here. And I think, uh, again, I, I'm not a scientist. I'm not a doctor. I, I just, you know, I, I read and study and try to learn things. But what I know is that a lot of the, a lot of the chemicals that are present, well, all of them really, uh, are, are volatile. And what people don't understand, you know, it's they look, the way a still operates, you've got to understand uh, if you have a, a glass of water on the counter in your house at room temperature, it's basically operating like a still. The, the water is evaporating. It's, the liquid is turning into a vapor and it's leaving the glass. Now, water will do that all the way down to 33 degrees. Once it hits 32 degrees, of course, it turns to a solid. But even at 33 degrees, water will evaporate and, and become a vapor. And then if you have a uh, the glass of ice on the counter, 
that vapor will condense on the outside and of the glass. And that's exactly what's happening in distillation. You're taking those volatile uh, chemicals, water, alcohol, and so on, and you're applying heat to them and you're causing them to, to vaporize more quickly than it, at room temperature. But if we leave our distillate overnight in the collection tank, uh, which is not a, a sealed tank, then we're allowing some of those volatile chemicals to dissipate into the into the air, right? And um, so there's there's a whole there's a lot a lot to it, but but you are correct that the EC is a, a, a natural byproduct of fermentation. There's a lot of things. I call it a chemical soup. Fermentation is like a chemical soup. There's there's a lot going on in there. Yep. Absolutely. So uh that goes, I think that leads perfectly into, um, I did want to ask you about the stills. So you said, just set the context, uh, one that you, um, you and the team fabricated the stills yourselves. Right. Um, and, uh, I know in, I forget which episode it was, but you were talking about how like some of these craft distilleries are bringing in a still that's, you know, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of dollars. And, most places don't have that right off the bat to just throw towards one piece of equipment in the process. So the two questions I have that come from that are number one, uh, you know, what was the fabrication process like? And perhaps before that, uh, when you decided that you wanted to launch a distillery, who did you look to for, um, you know, inspiration, advice, um, and, and guidance on how to do so? Yeah, great question. Uh, I'll, I'll answer the second one first because I don't want to forget it. Um, you know, I, um, I read books. I watched YouTube, uh, you know, looked at different things. I found a little book uh, on Amazon called How to Make Whiskey, and, and I bought the book, and I, I read it, and uh, a, guy, a guy named Brian Davis was out in California, had a distillery called Lost Spirits. And uh, I just thought he, he just had a really practical approach to the whole thing. And um, so I reached out to him and I said, hey, Brian, here's what I'm trying to do. And uh, would you be willing to uh, give me some advice on putting together a business plan, helping me with the financial numbers? Because I, you know, I had no idea how that part worked. And so uh, he and his he and his partner uh, agreed to help me, Brian, on the technical side, and she was helping uh, with the numbers and putting together the, the business plan. Um, and then and then I had an opportunity to fly out to California and visit uh, with them, and uh, you know talk to Brian and and the, you know a fascinating guy because he I, I said Brian, what's your background? You know, are you like mechanical engineer or something it's like no he's got a degree in in fine art and uh they had gone over to spain and and opened an absinthe distillery in spain when absinthe was still illegal in the united states and then eventually sold out and uh moved back to california to start a distillery there but but uh you know, Brian, he's just got a real deep understanding of, of the technical part, but then his distillery is, is a work of art as well as distills. He would, they had one that was, looked like a big dragon. So his, his line arm was 
like the head of a dragon and so on. But, but that, so that's who, who really inspired me, so to speak. And, um, and, uh, what was the first question? See, now I knew I was going to oh, forget. Okay. No, it's all right. I, I should have flipped them. That's, that's totally fine. Uh, the first one was, um, uh, what was the fabrication process like to oh, create yeah. your sales? Uh, you know, so so there's a there's a term that Toyota uses uh, called Kaizen. And Kaizen is, is this concept of continuous improvement, um, but it's usually s- sort of incremental and that's the process really that I went through. You know, I, I, I made a still and I, I actually bought the, the um, line arm and condenser on eBay, just a real simple, basic setup. And, um, and as I used it, then I started doing some modifications and more modifications and more, you know, I'd experiment with something and try something or learn something new from somewhere and, and then uh, kind of uh, build it. Um, but, you know, my background is a welder and I can uh, done a, a fair amount of electrical and plumbing work along the way. And, and so, you know, the copper uh, that we use for the vapor and the condensers and so forth, you know, it's all things you can acquire at the local store and you can solder it and put it together if you have some basic skills. Uh, TIG welding was something that I, I learned when I was in school and so that's uh, our stills are stainless. We acquired uh, stainless from uh, the food industry somewhere along the way. Like I got a, I got a tank that came out of a, a, a facility that Jim Beam had in Cincinnati. I've got a tank. One of the stills is a tank from a soy sauce factory in Wisconsin, for example. They used to do soy sauce and brew soy sauce. So we acquired these things, and um, you know, if I found it tank that was a reasonable price stainless steel something that was a very good price i'd usually buy it and then figure out how to turn it into a steel later and so uh, each of our stills is configured a little differently but with the same basic idea they have uh, doublers they have multiple doublers on the steels and so we can get a, a finished run in one pass we don't have to do multiple distillations because we have the doublers and each time the vapor turns back to a liquid and back to a vapor is an additional distillation. So we're basically getting a triple distillation in a single pass. So, so there's a lot of, a lot of trial and error, not so much error. I mean, nothing, nothing ever really failed. It's just, you try something and then you say, well, okay, if I, if I do this next bit, it'll just, it's known as cleaning up the spirit. So you just kind of, you clean it up a little bit and you're trying to eliminate some of the unpleasant things, whether those are things that have a certain taste or, you know, the proverbial bite or harshness or something like that. And so, um, you know, it was Brian actually who told me the first time I ran my steel, I didn't have, I didn't know you were supposed to do a stripping run and a finishing run. I don't remember anybody ever saying that. So, so I ran the product through there and I tried it. And I, you know, it, it tasted pretty good. I, I thought it was okay. Uh, the proof was pretty low. It was only about 90 proof. And so I was talking to Brian and, and uh, he said, well, did you do a finishing run? I said, what do you feel? What? And he, he said, you know, you did a stripping run and did you do a finishing run? I said, what are you talking about? I, I had no clue. And uh, so that's when, um, and it was actually Brian who, who suggested to me, uh, we'll put an additional doubler on there and see what it'll do. 
And I thought, okay. I mean, you know, that's how I operate with stuff. Somebody says, well, just like your suggestion to reach out to Pat Heiser. Well, okay. I never really thought about that, but maybe, maybe I'll explore that. And so that's kind of how I approached the uh, building the stills. And, um, and uh, you know, after you operate the still a number of times, you realize, oh, you know, I could have put this over here. It would have made it a little, little easier to, to use. But in terms of functionality, uh, it produces the product that you want. In terms of ease of use, the last still that actually John built the, the most recent still we have called America, and uh, I really like setting it up because the the way it's set up, coincidentally, the space he had to put it in, it's it's all along the wall, so everything you know. Your my other stills, I got to do circles around the stills because some parts of it are over there and some parts of it are over there, and you kind of have to work around. But that still, everything's everything's right there. And it's very easy and quick and efficient to set up. So, you know, I think, well, all right, in the future, if you're going to design and build a still, um, use that basic concept for the future stills. So it, it was an evolution to Kaizen, you know, uh, and to this day, we continue to, to learn, you know, you, you get an idea, you get a notion or, or you, suddenly some, something comes to mind and you say, oh, okay, let's improve that. Why didn't we think about that before? And the nature of Kaizen sort of is that the, the, uh, the idea comes to you when it's ready. And, um, you know, it, if, if you could hit a state of perfection on the very first try, you know, you would, but of course it's a constant uh, journey that you're moving, trying to always get better. And uh, sometimes, sometimes it's the, the, thing people don't understand is sometimes it's just not worth the trouble to get a little bit better it's more trouble than it's worth as they say but uh if you can change something you know we we not long ago we were exploring the idea of uh, because one of our one of our biggest besides distilling the other big energy user is cooking of the grain and of course you're heating up a pretty large quantity of water to do that and, uh, you know, we'd always used a certain amount of water based on that, what, you know, common recipes out there people talk about. Um, and started asking the question, well, what if we use a little bit less water? We'd have less to heat up. We'd have less to handle and process. And, and then if you can increase the uh, alcohol percentage a little bit, then you get a better, more efficient run in the steel. And so we started exploring that. And, and the benefit of being small like we are is we can we can do a quick experiment. You know, we can say, oh, well, let's cut the water back by 20% today and run a little experiment and see how it affects the fermentation and the distillation. And within a week or so, we can have the answer and we can make a decision about whether we want to continue to do that or not. And have a saying that everything's a trade-off too. You learn that you say, okay, you change something and you get a benefit, but there's also some negative side to it. That's just the way of the world. Okay. You make an improvement, but you also discover, oh, okay. There's a little bit of a drawback to that improvement. Makes this step a little bit more difficult or this step takes longer or something. And so then you have to look at it overall and decide whether that, the positive outweighs the negative and whether you should continue to do that or not. And so that's, that's the main thing that, that, uh, 
you know, that's what I learned at Toyota is how to do these experiments and how to make these decisions because there's no right or wrong answer to any of the questions. There's a decision. And that's what I'm telling you is, is there's as many ways to think about distilling as there are people distilling. And there's a lot of people distilling and, and, and there's some carryover. People have these notions about the, the, the correct way to do it. And so, well, there's, there's more than one correct way. There's more than one way that you can accomplish a good outcome. And, uh, you know, this is what we do. This is how we do it. But if we discover something that's going to improve our process, we're certainly willing to change that. And that's, that's kind of the takeaway from my Toyota and consulting experience. It's, it's a great way to think about things. Thought of is just, you've got to sometimes just take the step back. And that's when the idea will come to you. Mm-hmm. Um, so if Adam, it's, uh, it's a fascinating philosophy. It's something that all of us do on a daily basis, but um, it's not necessarily something we consciously think about or has been articulated. So I just wanted to mention that. No, that's, that's a great point. I think uh, you know, part of the challenge sometimes, and this is, where, this is where the outside eyes can be beneficial because the when you do the task every day, the task just seems normal to you. You don't really mm-hmm. reflect on, you know, is there a better way? Could there be a, a more efficient way or something? But somebody who, whose brain hasn't developed that acceptance can look at it and say, oh, you know, here's, a, here's another possibility. And so, you know, what you described there is exactly what I try to tell people, you know, writing the books, uh, creating anything. I mean, that's, that's what my past has been, you know, the pottery, the glass blowing, that those are creative aspects and you can't force it. You can't force yourself to be in a creative place. It's, it's, you know, it's a, a right brain activity. And um, so it's, yeah, trying not to try. I'm going to look that one up. Now you've got, now I've got, and drunk, you've got two things I got to read now, but um but yeah, it, it's interesting to me because having really, uh, I don't like to say preached that concept for so many years, but certainly taught it and talked about it. It's, it's interesting to me when, when I had that realization, of, oh, we could do this. And then I stop and look and say, why did it take six years to figure that out? Why did it take six years for that realization to come to mind? And of course, there's no answer. It just it did because it, it, it's time or you, you just never took the time to contemplate that or, or, or whatever, you know. And so when I usually say something like the ideas floating around in the room and when it's time to come, it's going to, you know, hit you in the head. Um, so but that's that's the nature of, of, of the Kaizen concept, too, is it's it's not something you sit down and say, oh, well what do I need to improve? It's something that you have a realization that something is a pain in the neck or it's difficult or, or whatever. And then you think, okay, what can I do to make that better? So anyway. Well, uh, there will definitely be a follow-up email that I'll, I'm going to send to you anyway, just with audio and, and anything else. And there are a couple of questions I know we're not going to get to just because I have a full page and I have them. So there, there's nowhere to get all of them, but I'll, I'll include drunk and try not to try on there. Um, and also, I don't know why this idea just came to me, but 
the way you were describing the idea is kind of floating in the air when it's the time is right, it will come to you and attach to you. For me, that also parallels how the yeasts work and it's just floating all in the air. And when it finds the right mm -hmm. environment, it's going to find that right environment. Yep. So um, there are a couple of your products that I really do want to mention um, before we close out, but there, but before we get to that, uh, the, I, I have to ask you about, about mash bill and I really want to, I think this came up on the, on both episodes that I uh, spoke about the idea that, um, yes, you have a mash bill generally that you go to, you know, the queer Vito Vivo is, uh, you know, about a 70, 20, 10, and there are other uh, mash bills by product. But uh, when you were, when you were asked, like, what's the percentages, what's the mash bill about that? Um, you, you threw out the percentage, but you really said like the way that we're looking at it, I think this was for the uh, Corvito and probably for the OCD. It's 600 pounds of corn, 60 pounds of rye, 30 pounds of barley. Yep, that's OCD. That's OCD. Okay. So, you know, if you're looking at that, that you can work out the numbers as to what percentages that are. But um, I guess I was asking how, how, you know, how did you come to that percentage or that, that mash recipe? And then so, you know, let's start with that question. How did you come to that recipe in particular? Well, uh, you know, I'd, I'd love to tell you that uh, our, our marketing department and our, you know, um, distilling department and all those, we, we sat down and we had endless meetings and committees and, and so on. Uh, and I'd love to be able to tell you, well, you know, if you're going to create a mash bill, uh, you also have to consider the economics of it. And, but, uh, you know, the, the reality is that, as I mentioned earlier, I did just a lot of experiments. Uh, I mean, I made pear brandy. I, I fermented uh, Welch's grape juice. I fermented uh, molasses and made rum. I, you know, in the beginning, it was, it had a little bit to do with what grains could I get a hold of, you know, and, and. Uh, and had to get a mill so that I could mill those grains because you, you can go to the local feed supply and they, they might have rye, but it's not milled. So then you got to kind of grind it yourself and do all these things. And so I was just experimenting and I, honestly, I don't, you know, I don't remember how we ultimately just came to that 660 30 uh, in, in retrospect, it probably would have been better to go, 650 50 or you know because our grains come in 50 pound bags so we have to weigh out you know if, we're, if we've got 60 pounds we get one bag plus 10 pounds and uh, so you know we we had to take some time to weigh out some of them the 70 20 10 the cuervito that's a recreation of old crow that was the percentage that old crow was and uh you know when we crunched the numbers it was like okay um, I don't, I don't remember what it was going to be. It's it was going to be 140 pounds of rye or something like that. I was just like, you know what, just make three 50 pound bag, make it 150 pounds even and, you know, simplify that. So we're not having to weigh out the, the grains all the time. So, it's, so it's not exactly 70, 20, 10, you know, it's 500 pounds of corn, 150 pounds of rye and 70 pounds of barley. So on the 70, we're still measuring it out, but the way we do the cook is we split it into two totes. And so each tote gets 35 uh, pounds of, 
our barley, which I would have to weigh out anyway because of the way we split it up. Um, so, uh, and the, the, the cob, you know, the amazing cob, oh, that, that recipe, you know, that one took a long time because it's 100% corn. I mean, we spent countless hours coming up with that recipe. <laughs> but no, actually, the way it happens is John stopped me one day and he says, uh, are you aware that we're out of rye? And I was like, no. <laughs> and you can't just snap your fingers and get some delivered. So he says, what would happen if we just used all corn? And I said, I don't know. Let's try it. And, uh, you know, so, so a lot of things just happen that way. It's just that, that happened to have been a, a, a happy accident. I, you know, failed to, uh, get some rye. And so we said, what happens if we just use hundred percent corn? That's a unique idea. Let's try it. And all of our products are unique from the beginning. They all have a different mash bill. We don't have a shared mash bill for any, any of our products. And so the, the sweet, the weeded bourbon was simply uh, change wheat for rye on the OCD and use the same proportions of corn and, and barley, just swap it out. And then Cafe Olay uh, uses a roasted barley. And so we just use roasted barley instead of the standard barley. So, you know, that those were all intentional things. But like I said, if we have an idea, we can we can make a cook up a batch and we can have it fermented and, and then be in the still within about a week or 10 days. And then if you taste it at the still and you like the way it tastes, you can keep going, you know, continue to make it. Uh, one of the one of the fellows who who helps out here on weekends, Tom, earlier this year asked if if I'd ever considered using any of the heirloom corns, the red, white, and blue corns. And I said, well, you know, it's a, it's a financial implication because the red corn costs about a dollar a pound, for instance, whereas yellow number two corn, it's $9 for 50 pound bag. And so if you're going to create a product that's, you know, significantly more expensive, it needs to, A, it needs to taste really good. And, and I'm not sure about those corns. I never experimented with those because I didn't have access to those. But I said, look, let's buy a couple tons and we'll, we'll do a test. And um, so, you know, we decided to continue with that, but, but to do it on a annual basis. And uh, he created a product we call patriotic cob. So it's again, hundred percent corn, but it's a combination of red, white, and blue corn. And, and then uh, he also wanted to do a multi-grain product. So we created a seven grain, a seven grain product. Now those will be distilled only once per year because the grain is quite expensive and, and we'll release those. Our plan is to release those sometime at 4th of July because the patriotic cobs, red, white, and blue. And, um, so, so we can do that, you know, and if those, the, the cost of those grains is significantly higher and, um, this, the way we process the grains, uh, this, that seven grain one was very difficult to run through our, our process. And so, uh, if we can't, if we can't make that easier, you know, that's a decision going forward is like, Oh, maybe it makes a good product, but it's a pain in the ass. And, you know, are we going to, are we going to continue to do that? Hopefully I can say that word on your, on your podcast because your visitor, oh, yeah. your listeners are all 21 or older, right? 
Yeah, we're all 21 and older. I mark everything explicit because, you know, I, I don't want to have to go out there and put a <laughs> over a fuck or something like that, you know. So if it could, you know, some guests are more profane than others. I'll throw that out there. Yeah. But but no, it's not a big deal at all um, with the. So just to go through a couple that you just mentioned, I mean, the amazing Cobb I got to try. Um, I do want to note you were very generous with um, uh, supplying samples to try. And I really appreciate that. Uh, of course, it doesn't you know, influence my, my ratings or anything like that. I rem- but having said that, some of your products, particularly the bourbons that I tried, are um, up there for my just top things that I've tried this year. And I think every person that I mention bourbon to, I've been mentioning you guys for that reason. Yeah. Um, so the the cob was, of course, corn whiskey. There aren't a lot of 100% corn whiskeys out there. Most of them are closer to the 80% corn just by regulation, uh, by minimum required by regulation, I should say. Uh, and it was different than other corn whiskeys and i really you know i'll elaborate that in a written um taste notes and review but it was it was different in the best way well first of all it is a bourbon it's not a corn whiskey it's a bourbon it's bourbon okay and uh, that's one thing that confuses people a lot because corn whiskey has to be at least 80 percent corn so the assumption is once you pass 80 percent it automatically becomes corn whiskey i said no you really need to to look at the regulation and unfortunately the wording in the regulation the way it's wording i think they need a comma because it says the for corn whiskey the regulation says and if stored whereas all the other whiskeys say must be stored so first thing is corn whiskey could be sold clear. Right, right. It doesn't have to be, it doesn't have to go into a, a chardo container. It can't go in a chardo container. In fact, the law says that and if stored in new or used, or is it used or new uncharred barrels. And so people assume that you can put it in a used bourbon barrel. But the, the law goes on to say that corn whiskey can, may not come in contact with charred wood in any fashion. So corn whiskey has to be aged in a non-charred container, whereas all the other whiskeys must be stored in a new charred oak container. Okay, so that's, that's the difference between corn whiskey and, and bourbon. There's no upper limit. Bourbon and all the other whiskeys simply say at least 51% of the primary grain. They don't say a maximum see so it is it is a bourbon and it is 100 percent. and uh, we do store it in a, a new charto container just like our other bourbons and and it is unique and i think all of our products are are unique in in that um because just like i explained to people I said when i started distilling and i was 50 whatever years old um, everything i'd ever consumed in my life for the most part came from a column still and a column still is going to produce a different type of finished spirit. I mean, it's just things like the mouthfeel and 80 proof as well. If you're going to, if you're going to be at 80 proof, you have to chill filter and that's going to change the mouthfeel. When you run a pot still and you put it at 110, 120 proof or something, you get a, a completely different uh, texture in the mouth because you have the fatty acids are still present. So there's just a lot of things about our products that are going to be unique in terms of how they taste or how they come across now. And 
And I do tell people, that doesn't mean you're going to like every one of them. I don't expect anyone to like everyone. And I, it would be normal for you to say, oh, I really like one more than the other. Or, oh, that one really, that one comes across as really unique. And I like that fact or, or whatever the case may be. Um, and certainly, as you well know, because you're putting yourself out there in the world, that uh, if you can't take a little bit of criticism from time to time, uh, you really shouldn't be putting yourself out there. And, 100%. Yeah. and that's, you know, if somebody doesn't care for the products, I understand that. And it, it's perfectly okay. Um, not everybody's going to drink hard spirits anyway. And, you know, some people, they come in here and they let it be known. Well, I really, I really am a beer person. Well, okay. Then probability of you enjoying our products is probably lower and that's fine. You know, that it's okay. But, uh, but yeah, I was, uh, I have to say too that uh, I got your information from Jeff Schwartz, who I've never actually formally met, but I appreciate the fact that both of you guys make it pretty clear. And I read some of your stuff uh, about the fact that if you're going to review something, you're going to give your honest feedback about it. And that's the only feedback I want. I don't want somebody to tell me that, Oh, this is really great. If they don't, they don't care for it. And, you know, I, I think I'm, reasonable enough and with folks here we try that before we put something in a bottle we select barrels you know we choose which barrel we're going to put in a bottle uh, which one we think is ready and uh, i think that you know um that we're sensible enough and honest enough to be able to say look if it's not ready we're not going to bottle it yet mm -hmm. but I, I also can tell you from sitting at that tasting table with so many people over the years that uh, first of all, our distillate comes out of the still tasting good. It's going to go in a barrel and it's going to come out tasting better. The barrel's never going to ruin the whiskey unless we do something really unusual with where we store the barrel. But the barrel itself is never going to uh, cause the product to, to be bad. So it's never when we taste the barrel, there's never a question of, is it good? The question really is, is it ready? Do we think the barrel has contributed enough to the whiskey to, to appeal to people? And if it appeals to us, we assume that it's going to appeal to other people as well. But again, not everyone and not everyone's going to like everything or somebody's going to say the cafe lay. They're going to say, oh, you know, I really don't like coffee. And that that uh, roasted barley is giving that a, a little bit of a coffee note that I don't care for. OK, yeah, fair enough. And other people say, oh, I really like that. I uh, It comes in on the back. I really like how that coffee slash dark chocolate comes in on the back of that. So, OK. And there's no right or wrong answer to what you like. You like what you like. And we make a variety of different products. I think we, uh, we have uh, people are, are quite often uh, amazed and they look and they say, wow, for a small distillery, you really have a, a large lineup. And I said, well, yeah, maybe because the two of us, John and myself, maybe we have a little ADD-ness in us and, you know, we get bored easily and we want to try something different. And, uh, you know, last year I started doing blue agave, sort of got the idea. So, hey, you know what? Maybe we should try some some tequila. We can't call it tequila, but, you know, that's essentially what it is. And, um, and, and for me, the objective with all of that, you create a new product is uh, really, can you, is it possible to create something that you're, a, you're proud enough of that you think is good enough of that you want to put out there and that people will actually enjoy and, and appreciate. 
and you know what you're doing with your work is the same kind of thing is you obviously uh, you want to create something that that people are going to appreciate and uh, so with the, in a notion of the agave was like can I don't know I've never tried it can we can we somehow figure out how to make an agave spirit that appeals to people sure let's try you know and uh, so that's kind of how, how, it, how it operates. But, but yeah, uh, it was Jeff. Um, I learned about you through Jeff. And, and uh, when I realized and could see in your work that you, you know, you're, you're straight up about it. And you can, you can be critical without being mean and nasty. You don't have to say mean things. You just have to share your views of it. And, you know, and there, there's, as you're aware, there's probably a lot of, uh, reviews and things that are going on out there that, that you know, people, I, I've read some reviews of some places where you can see that people are trying to be kind and not be too critical, but they really might need to be a, a little more critical. There's definitely a, a fine line. And I, uh, while I appreciate, I appreciate everything you said. Uh, it's, as you know, from your position, it's not an easy line to walk sometimes. And I've said this elsewhere that, you know, if I write a quote unquote bad or a negative review about something from Heaven Hill, um, they, they, they can handle that. There's so many to play, there's so yeah. many people writing about them, they can handle that. But um, if it's a smaller distillery, I really do try to. If I don't like some, if I really don't like something, like let's let's say I try something and I just hate it, um, then I'll talk to you offline and say like, okay, I really didn't like this one. Uh, maybe I won't put a review up of it, but I also want to figure out like why didn't I like it? Uh, but if it's something that I, anything other than that, like if it's something that I love, something that I like, something that I think has promise, but needs a little more, that's when I really, like I said, I want to write about where something is now, but also give plenty of context for the reader. If there's someone who've never heard of Glens Creek, never gotten to try it or go down there and listen to you or John uh, or anyone else talk about these products while you're tasting them, then you're just going to look at it and say, it's a, a bourbon from Kentucky. Maybe you know the mash bill. Um, maybe you know how old or young it is, depending on what it is. And you're going to make a judgment call based on that. Yeah. And if there's more that I can put in there in the review, that's why, honestly, when I write a review, I consider the paragraphs above it far more important than the actual tasting notes and the final grading. Yeah. Because you've got to know that context first. Otherwise, it's just a number and everyone's right. numbers are different. Right. Yeah. Um, well, you know, it's interesting because I sent the samples to Jeff and um, the one the one that he didn't care for at all was Cuervito Vivo. And uh, I, I told him, I, he, his response was, uh, he said, I, I just can't find anything about it that I like. And I, I told him, and I didn't take that personally. I told him, I said, that's really kind of interesting because that's actually our best seller. People tend to, to really like that one and, and the OCD. Uh, those are kind of neck and neck. But, uh, but you know, it's that's the deal is we don't all like the same things. We don't all like the same movies or books or food or, or whatever. And uh, if somebody doesn't care for a particular one uh, in his case, I just thought that was interesting because that's, that is the one that people usually taste and go, Oh, I really like that one or, or 
well, that one's really smooth or, you know, whatever comments like that. Um, but I also try to, you know, let people know these are single barrels. So there's going to be some variation barrel to barrel. The, the benefit I think here, David, is when people sit down and they taste something, I point out to them, this is barrel, whatever number. And you see behind me, that's the, that's the one that I'm going to sell so that you're going to go home with exactly what you taste. If you really like that particular one, that's the one you go home with. Uh, it's not, you're going to get something different. You're going to get home and open it up and say, well, gee, that doesn't taste anything like it did at the distillery. Right. And um, so that's something that's important to us too. And, and, and a constant challenge because when we get to the end of the barrel and we've only got a few bottles left, we try to you know consolidate that in one place so that we can, Make sure that uh, what you taste is is what you would get, and and so therefore, if you try something and it just doesn't appeal to you, then you don't have to buy it, right? You don't you don't. Sure. It's fine, and and I it, I think there's a difference. I I I explain to people. I said, look, there is a category out there that I call awful or terrible or or whatever word, and. You have to quantify that. You have to be able to say, look, if I if I gave 100 people uh, a sample of this, uh, you know, 90 percent would agree it's just it's just bad. Something's wrong. I, you know, can't put my finger on what it is, but it's just not good. And that's different from what you kind of were talking about is is if you get if you're if you don't care for a particular distillery's basic flavor profile, that's preference. But if you say, well, I don't really care for, say, Four Roses or something. Well, that doesn't mean Four Roses isn't good. There's plenty of people out there who really love Four Roses and they like that particular thing. That's just not your preference. And that's different. Exactly. And, and there's cheap bourbon, right? And I tell people, this, yeah, there's a category called cheap bourbon. And some of it's actually not that bad. But, it's, you know, what do you want for $12? You, you can't expect a $100 experience for 12 bucks. Right. And but then you move, then you move into... The category I call your, you know, your your everyday drinking bourbons, and there's just quite a few in that category that are reasonably priced, readily available, and so on. And then you start getting into the higher end products, and and then eventually you get into the overhyped, overpriced. You know, why why are you chasing down that and spending that kind of money for it? It's good stuff, but it's not worth that. And so that's kind of how I categorize things. And I said, well, look, I I don't think we've put anything on the table that's just awful but we put things on the table that people for whatever reason it's not their flavor preference like i said the cafe la you don't like you don't enjoy coffee then maybe you're not going to enjoy that okay i was tasting with a couple the wife i think was more into whiskey than the husband was but neither of them were big whiskey drinkers in general was more i think for their son um who in turn was more of a scotch drinker so um (laughs) It was an interesting experience. Yeah. Um, but yeah, you could tell through the, through taste of the OCD, uh, definitely the cafe au lait, um, the sweet. I don't think we got to the cob, but we got the Millville malt as well. Uh, you could see that the wheels turning their heads as they taste these things. It was really fun to see people, to see that in people while you're tasting. Uh, I know we're running short on time, but I, I want to close out on just one uh, or two more things quickly. Okay. The first, no one, the first one being that Millville malt. So um, I'll be up front and you'll see this in, in the reviews when they go live. Uh, my favorite overall of everything that I got to taste was, in fact, the Cafe Olay. 
um, it narrowly beat out the OCD premium for me um, just a little bit, but the, it beat it out by nature of its uh, uniqueness. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I just, I loved it. Um, and I got to try the Corvette Vivo again. Like I like that as well. The sweet I felt was a great, it was just like a, a caramel bomb. Mm-hmm. Like so like just Werther's and um, caramel taffy and vanilla taffy all over the place. Yeah. Yeah. I yeah. hear that a lot with that one actually. Yeah. Um, but the, uh, the Millville malt, I was really interested in cause I'm a, uh, I'm on a kick with American single malts right now uh writing a few things and and um by the time this episode goes live the the standards of identity might have been made formal but as of recording they're still uh in the proposal stage uh so from from what you've said and what i've heard there's only going to be these three barrels that are there right um and uh i have to say after tasting them um i uh that makes me sad because i (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, we still have some that you can you can certainly buy some part, stock up. It was uh, part we, of the order that I put in, so that, that's so sure. so uh, you know. Um, I'll just explain that because I talked about it a little bit earlier uh, how some things don't work in our process, and it starts at the stills. One of the things we do that's unusual is we have direct heat on the stills, so so there's a a, a flame on the still. And it's like cooking food on your stove. If you put a pot of food on the stove and, and uh, turn the heat on, it's going to burn if you don't stir it. Our stills don't have agitators. Uh, so we have to extract the, the liquid, and we separate the liquid from the grain prior to distillation. Mm-hmm. And the trouble is the small grains, and that's 100% malt, so that's one of the small grains. Uh, they're more finely ground. We have to use cracked corn as well. To, to make it go through that machine as a screw press it squeezes it and, and gets the liquid out. So the, the Corvito, for example, with the higher percentage of small grains just goes through that machine. So slow. It's just slow. When we do Cobb, I, I put in perspective when we do Cobb. Okay. If I start that at nine o'clock in the morning on the screw press, uh, I can have two totes of Cobb through the press by noon mm-hmm. because it's all, cracked corn and it doesn't have any small grains. If I do two Cuervitos, I'm lucky to get through the second one by seven o'clock at night. Wow. So I'm currently working on a new piece of equipment that uh, the manufacturer seems to think will, will help uh, expedite that with the, with those smaller grains, in which case then we could go back and make malt whiskey again. It just, it was, it was so much trouble to get the liquid separated from the grain that we just kind of looked at each other and said, nah, it's not worth the trouble, you know? So, so it might happen. I don't, don't count it out yet. We just right now is to look at our current process. We just, it's just really a pain in the neck. Just really. It makes, makes sense. And with the, just with the capacity you've got, that's a consideration. So, or, or, or you know, we do, Again, back to what you said earlier, you know, invest in a, a lauder ton that they use in Scotland for that step because they're separating out the grain before fermentation. And, uh, you know, there's there's ways to do it. We just and I'm I'm really working on that other piece of equipment that I think will will help us increase our capacity overall, because that 
machine it is the bottleneck step of our process right now. And it's kind of what's holding us. We've got enough distillation capacity and fermentation capacity and cooking capacity. We just can't get it through that machine. So, so anyway, I'm glad you liked it. And, uh, uh I, I think is, you know, I, I'm not a heavy heat guy. And so, you know, we, we controlled the level of peat at a kind of a lower, a lower level, but that one is a hundred percent malted and we triple distill it. And, you know, we do, we tried to replicate a Scottish procedure as much as possible on that one. Yeah. The, the peat, the smoke, it's very mild. It's very approachable. Yeah. yeah. Um, I, I don't mind a good bit of peat in some of the stuff that I like, and it was, it was quite delicious. And uh, the, the other question I had just on that particular product was, as we said, there are any number of reasons why it could have tasted differently than another, another excuse me, American single malt that I've tried or that. But were, do you know the, um, the strain of barley that was being used? For that? I used so the base malt was a, a Pilsner barley. And the uh, this peat smoke we imported from Scotland and uh, as I recall, the, the peat, so on the peat, they measure the phenols in a parts per million level. And so uh, preferring a light, lighter smokiness, I went with a 20 PPM. Uh, uh, got it from, uh, the, the malt come from Brewer Supply Group, which is imported from, from uh, Scotland. The Oh, that that makes so much sense in terms of what I was what I was tasting because yeah. I was thinking this tastes like it was distilled from a beer that you could actually drink. Yeah, yeah, that was that while. was you know that was a result of of one of the many many experiments that I had done uh, because I you know was uh, getting malt from the liquor store in their brewing section and then I finally made a relationship with the local. A brewery who had you know access to bags of different malts munich malts ipa malts and or pilsner malts and so forth and so i i experimented with a, a lot of different malts to see you know what effect they they had on the flavor as well and so um that was why i chose a pilsner base because i had done an experiment and kind of enjoyed the result makes so much sense and this is why i like having these conversations because that was the piece of the puzzle i was missing yeah and uh perfect so with that dave i will uh i'll let you go in a minute um we're just going to close out with a couple of things so uh you know number one again i I can't stress this enough to the listeners i spent a week in kentucky and tennessee and i'm pretty sure my experience and tasting stuff at glens creek was was the highlight of not top two or three it was just an excellent experience, uh, whether it's Dave leading you through, whether it's John leading you through. Um, I had John personally when I was there. It's just a really great experience. Um, make it a day. Go there. Go to Castle and Key next door. Go visit the area. Uh, and I can't recommend it enough. So, And for that matter, I know you guys are distributed only in uh, Kentucky and, and locally for the moment. Uh I've got an order in a friend's going to help me get that legally, of course, but definitely go in and try. And if you like something, buy it because it might not be there the next time you come. So, yeah. And you're, you're, 
I, I believe you uh, got some things through what what's known as the Glens Creek Vault, where mm -hmm. on our website you can purchase things and we can hold them for you. We we can't ship. It's it's your state's laws that restrict the shipping, not us. Yep. Uh, but but it will hold it for you, and he, and if a friend comes to get it, or if you make your way here, it'll be there for you. And certain things, like you mentioned, the OCD premium. You know, we, we get about two barrels of that a year. Uh, the big challenge for us in terms of distribution is just having the supply. And, and honestly, you know, with the demand we have right here, uh, we increased production a few years back, but the, the nature of this business is you can increase production, but you don't feel the effects for several years. Right. And so I think rolling into 2023, we'll, we're going to be in a better position to have the aged product uh, ready and, and can explore uh, further distribution at that point. But it's just been a supply issue is, is really what's restricted it. We, you know, we get uh, most of the visitors here and, um, and yeah, I, I have to say, you know, John does a great job on those tastings too. He's been here with me from almost day one and you've got, no matter who you sit with, if you sit with one of the other folks, you got uh, sometimes uh, some some summer help or whatever. But everybody here learns to do all the work. Everybody here can explain the work. They can explain the process. Um, you know, Vicky out front does some short tastings, and she's immersed herself and and learned about the the place and the process, the history and all those things. And so, you know, you're not going to get a spiel. You're not going to get the same experience that you've gotten in, in the other places. Uh, people are going to be able to answer your questions if you have technical questions and you want to know about it. So that's, that's one thing that I think sets us apart is no, no matter who you talk to, there's somebody who knows about the process and, if they don't know about the process, they'll find somebody who does and can answer those questions. Can ask more than that? Trust me, really can't. Um, so again, thank you so much, Dave, for uh, for coming on, for providing those samples, uh, which again led me to buy a bunch of products uh, from the vault and from the regular lineup. Um, go visit the Mama Crack and Pike down in Frankfurt. Uh, I'll put links to all the social media, the website and such in the show notes for this episode. Make sure to click through and look at all the information on the website. Uh, in the meantime, follow uh, this podcast on any of your podcast platform, rate and reviews, uh, subscribe so you don't miss an episode. Um, Dave, hold on with me just for a second uh, after we finish right. up. No problem. And, uh, it's been another episode of Whiskering Podcast. See you next week. Thanks for having me, David. <laughs>